All right, Tony. So now that we've been working on calendar for season three, you know, you know what is nagging me in the back of my mind? What's that? What did we do with the Dial of Destiny pod that we recorded? Holy crap. We didn't do a pod on Dial of Destiny. We didn't release that? We did not release it. You know, maybe maybe Indy needs to go on an adventure. Well, Indy needs to <laughs> Indy needs to time travel. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I think uh, Dial of Destiny just came out on Disney Plus, didn't it? It's now on Disney Plus. I think it's a great time to think about releasing it, right? So why don't we why don't we just let everybody listen to it? All right. Well, then we'll go back in time and imagine it's the summer. <laughs> and uh, join us for uh, our excellent adventure in the movies with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Movies. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Movies. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we usually explore our love for music, but today we are talking movies. You know, with the... Uh return of big budget movies to the theaters we just couldn't resist uh talking about all these great movies that are coming out summer of movie fun absolutely we love hearing from you when we talk about music and albums and we definitely want to hear from you when we talk about these movies so you can reach us by email at bill at bntexcellent.com or tony at bntexcellent.com you can also find us on social media on Instagram, Bill and Tony Pod, Twitter at Bill and Tony Pod, and on Facebook, uh, you can find our BNT Excellent page. So, Tone, I think we should start off with a term. And I think the term is important specifically for our summer movie series. I think we need to talk about what a MacGuffin is and why should I really care about a MacGuffin? Is that fair? Sure. And, you know, for our uh, experienced movie watchers, you'll know what a MacGuffin is. So, this is so just humorous. For, yeah, so this is <laughs> going to be for the folks that uh, have heard the term, don't know where it comes from, or uh, don't really know what it is that we're talking about. So take it away, Bill. So a MacGuffin is a plot device. It's basically an object or a device, or in some cases, an event that really is necessary to move the plot forward. Um, it's really typically the motivation of the characters, but it's not really in it itself something that's super important. It's just the motivation of what's driving the action in the movie. Supposedly, the name MacGuffin was coined by a British screenwriter, but it was really popularized by Alfred Hitchcock. And specifically, Hitchcock looked at it as something that was irrelevant. Like it was something that was just a thing, but it drove, it really drove the plot of the movie. Now, George Lucas looks at it a little differently, and he really kind of sees it as something that's the heart of the movie. So I think it's it's interesting, especially in this this series. Yeah, and, and when you think about famous MacGuffins, uh, anything come to mind? The Ark of the Covenant. I mean, come on. That's the, the ultimate, ultimate MacGuffin. I think of the Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a great one. So anyway, bec because the series is largely driven by these things that Indy is going after, the whole concept of MacGuffin is really important to personally me, how I look at the movies. All right. So let's get back to dial of destiny. 
So let's start with some basic movie information about Dial of Destiny. Obviously, the movie stars Harrison Ford, but it also features Mads Mikkelsen and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It was directed by James Mangold, who'd also directed Ford versus Ferrari, Logan, Wolverine, Identity, Girl Interrupted, Copland, and Walk the Line. There are four credited writers for this movie, Jez and John Henry Butterworth, whose writing credits include Edge of Tomorrow and Spectre, David Kep, who wrote The Mummy, the Tom Cruise 2017 version, and Spider-Man, the original Tobey Maguire movie, and Mission Impossible 1. And then you've got James Mangold, who directed this movie and wrote it, as well as Logan and Copland and Walk the Line. The movie, obviously, is based on characters that were created by George Lucas, and it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival on May 18th, and then went to wide release on June 30th. So a little bit of the backstory about this movie, it was first announced all the way back in 2016, and they were trying to release it on July 19th of 2019. However, the movie didn't actually start shooting until June 2021, so in the midst of COVID, and then there were delays because the script and the story just weren't tight, and then you had you know, COVID protocols and stoppages, and then late in the process, Harrison Ford got hurt while they were shooting the movie. So it really got pushed out even further. So after all of those delays, filming finally concluded in late February of 2022. As far as box office goes, as of today, July 19th, it has made 150 million domestically and 157 internationally for a total of $307 million. The reviews have been not so bad on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a 69% fresh rating overall, but only 60% amongst its top critics. On Metacritic, it has a rating of 58, with 44% of reviews being positive, 53% mixed, and only 1% negative. So that's the basic info on the movie. So Bill, what do you think about maybe doing a synopsis of the different scenes or settings? So I think maybe we could talk a little bit about how the movie progressed and what we liked in each of the sections. Sound fair? Yeah, that sounds good. So we start with the opening segment, which was shockingly long. It was... If you had told me going into the movie that I was going to see de-aged Harrison Ford for at least 30 minutes to kick off the movie, I would have told you there's no way. There's no way. I didn't time it. And 30 minutes feels long, but it was incredibly long segment. Um, And this takes place in Europe in 1944 uh, in the midst of, uh, you know, World War II. And Ford is uh, with his buddy Basil Shaw, and they're trying to steal back some, you know, other MacGuffin, the Lance of Longinus or something like that. And this is supposedly the uh, knife that pierced the side of uh, Jesus while he was on the cross. And, you know, they steal it, but it turns out it's fake. And then they're trying to escape and they're being chased. And the guy that they're stealing it from is the Mads Mikkelsen character. So your section was Voller. 25 minutes long. Just holy crap. Quick, quick search. 25 minutes long. Yeah. So what did you think of, you know, you mentioned the de-aging. What did you think of it? So I, I actually think the visual was really good. Um, I didn't get hung up on the visual of it at all. I know, you know, there've been some talk about that and whatnot and whether, you know, you could kind of get hung up in the different faces and whatnot, but I, I didn't. What lost me partially was the disconnect between 80-year-old Harrison Ford's voice and the young Harrison Ford mm-hmm. face. That's what lost me. And it was early on, 
it was a lot more pronounced, but I think, I think they got better with, with it um, in certain sections. But when they first had him start talking, I'm like 80 year old dude's voice coming out of like young guys mouth. It was really disconnected for me that piece. I had a little bit of that as well. I was on the visual front. I was thrown off, not because it wasn't good, but because it was so good. It was jarring. Yeah, it was jarring. Exactly. It was it was almost distracting because it looked so good. I was was, really it was was smooth. I mean, yeah, exactly. I was really impressed by that. And to your point about the voice, I definitely had that at first. I don't know necessarily they got better with it or maybe we just uh, maybe i got used to it to it yeah yeah i think it may be normalized in my head when i first heard him talk i'm like ah, uh, you know and, and then it, it maybe i just let let it go and kind of went with it but it was noticeable so that's what i think happened personally i think that it normalized and i got used to it and and once you decide that i'm not gonna get hung up on this and just let the movie happened. It wasn't a problem for the back half of that opening segment. No, agreed. I think after the first couple of minutes, I didn't notice it anymore. And I, I think to your point, I think I just took the leap and, you know, had faith and went with it. So there was one thing that more so than the de-aging and the voice and the visuals, one thing that honestly bothered the heck out of me was the train sequence when they're running on top of the train they were running on top of the train like they were video game characters. This train is moving at, you know, whatever, 50, 60 miles an hour. They were sprinting across this train like in an, at an impossible rate. And that really took me out of it for a second. I I couldn't stop like being bothered by it. I don't know. Did you happen to notice that? It was definitely a little bit video gamey. I agree with that. Um, I, I feel like that part of it, Again, I kind of just let some of that stuff go and, you know, wasn't paying maybe quite as much attention to that, but it was a little fast paced hectic. Yeah. All right. So any other comments on that opening part? Other than the length? I mean, I actually think the de-aging worked really well. If you told me 25 minutes of young Harrison Ford was how the movie was going to kick off and and then I was going to be completely immersed in it and be like, wow, give me more of this. I would have told you you're crazy, but I thought it was great. All right, cool. So then the next scene is we're in modern times, 1969 to be exact. We're in New York City and Indy is teaching at Hunter College in Manhattan. And it is clear that he is separated from Marion and there's a divorce uh, decree or not a divorce decree, but divorce papers on his fridge or something like that. And and, you know, we, we come to learn that Mutt, his son, had died in the Vietnam War. And and basically, Indy is like super down and depressed and, and whatnot. And in pops his buddy Basil's daughter, his apparent granddaughter, Helena Shaw. And that is played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So long story short, she comes in and she is there to steal something that Indy has in the Hunter College archives. And of course... The bad guys, we later learn to be Nazis, come and they are trying to take it from her. I have a couple of nitpicks with the where they set it. Um, I feel like, and this is nitpicking, but I feel like, you know, Raiders came out in 1981 and this movie is in 2023. That's 42 years later. Very clearly, Harrison Ford is 42 years older than he was when the movie was, you know, the first in the franchise was shot. 
And to say that the difference between de-aged Harrison Ford and the character that you see in 1969 is 25 years is a real stretch. Um, so again, kind of had to let that go, but it was, it jumped out at me. And there were a few things like that that jumped out at me. Like e even some of the the pieces where they were talking about what happened to characters from other mo uh, the other movies, which we can get to that. But um, there were some time sequence things that, you know, they had to make it fit for the story that they had, but they, I feel like they could have, they could have made it fit a little bit better. Yeah. So they were plainly wanting to set it in that moment in time, obviously 69 and, and the moon day and the moon landing and all that. What would have been an alternative setting then? You know, what, first of all, what would have been age appropriate? Well, because they wanted the Nazi plot device, it was a stretch to not, I mean, they couldn't have gone past that significantly and, and maybe had that Nazi plot device work as, as well, but you know, they, they might've gone to, you know, the Couldn't do it today because today would today would actually work politically, but it it doesn't work time wise, yeah. right? It's it's too far away. I mean, they, they probably could have gone to the eighties, but I I mean, I think the moon landing, and you know specifically the, you know having the German scientist involved in the the moon landing, yeah. I it, it you know it it kind of fit the plot, but I just kind of struggled with the time difference. I didn't care at all about that. That was not so you know i i went into it like willing to you know ignore all of that because this is just the reality of what we have to deal with so that didn't bother me in the least the only other thing i would say with that section tone is the the whole him jumping on the horse if you want to talk where, where i felt like you know some of the cgi was like kind of a little wonky there were a couple of points there where i'm like yeah i don't know about this I liked it. I mean, to me, it's an indie movie. You got to have him on a horse. So since you you need to check that box, they checked it. And again, I went in knowing that we were going to have some little bit of wonkiness. And as long as it didn't visually disrupt my experience, I let um, that stuff go. I was glad to see him on a horse. Fair. Um, now, counter to that, I loved the way they introduced Wombat and the backstory that they created with the opening in 1944 and then introducing her in, in New York. I, I, I love that. Definitely. I mean, I love uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and she was just absolutely the perfect person to play this part. I'll tell you something else that I really liked though. And I liked it at the time, but I liked it even more when I went back and rewatched all of the indie movies ahead of tonight's uh, pod. And it was great to see how completely bored and utterly disconnected his students were in his lecture and then when you go back and watch the the, the first uh, uh movies and just how you know i love you written on their eyes i love you and, and the, like the young the young yeah i mean that, that that was one of the things i think they did really well about you know how where he is in his life how he feels about where mm -hmm. he is in his life it was it was a it was an arc in the movie. And, and I, I felt like that was really, really well done. So I, I agree. I think that, that that was actually a really thoughtful piece uh, of how they told the story yeah, there. That, that might've been my favorite part of that whole New York segment was just seeing the, where he was in his life now as demonstrated by his uh, classroom scene. Yeah. The, the only other thing I would say is you've got, you know, de-aged Harrison Ford, um, you know, in 1944, you've got Mad Mikkel Mads Mikkelsen in 1944, and then you've got a not too different Mad Mikkelsen 
1969. So that just for me amplified the fact that it was like, dude, you're playing with the time here. I definitely hear you, but you know, same answer there is I just let it go. And, and, and also we're dealing with actors that I like to see on screen. So give me Mads and Harrison doing whatever, and I'll watch it, you know, anytime. So I'm just yeah. being critical because, you know, overall I enjoyed the movie, uh, but I'm just trying to find places where, you know, there were, there were things I thought about while I was watching it. So, Oh, I just remembered something else that was, was really actually almost heartbreaking was the scene with Salah where, you know, his buddy from the first three movies and, you know, he's got the big f- loved bringing him back, loved bringing him back. That but was it tremendous. was, I love bringing him back, but it was more than just a Easter egg or callback or whatever. It had a really poignant thing to say about the American experience. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. About what, what his life was like. And he's talking to his grandson and whatnot. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, thinking back to, you know, he had that big house and that big family. He was obviously an important man uh, back in the day. And now he's what, like a cab driver living in a crummy apartment in New York and and thrilled to right. be there. And just really just a great exemplification of the American immigrant experience. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. All right. So anything else for New York? I think we hit on the high points for what I thought happened in that section. I mean, I, I think it, it set up the, the, the rest of the movie uh, because, you know, you introduced a key character. You made the connection. You baited the hook, so to speak. And the movie really progressed from there. Okay. So now we go over to uh, Morocco uh, after uh, Helena slash Wombat has stolen the artifact. And now she's going back, trying to sell it on the black market. And, you know, we get introduced to another sidekick. You know, we we do like our sidekicks. And this one is um, a kid named Teddy, who's a Wombat sidekick and helping her um, steal things and sell them. And, you know, they're partners. What did you think of that whole section? For me, the section where they had the race on the streets of Morocco was phenomenal in that little tiny vehicle. And they kept changing who was driving and, and, and fighting and jumping between vehicle, you know, indeed, 80 year old indie jumping between vehicles and whatnot. I, I thought it was phenomenal. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. For me, give me more of that. The horse I didn't need that I loved. That was really well done. And I don't know how much of that was CGI and how much was that just old fashioned, great stunt work uh, with good stunt doubles, but that did not, uh, I didn't have any trouble with uh, that at all. That, uh, that car chase scene. I thought it was one of the better chase scenes I've seen in a little while. I thought it was excellent. Okay. Anything else on Morocco? If not, let's get to, I don't know if, I guess it's the Mediterranean and if it's coastal Greece, but out on the water, Speaking of chase scenes, I have to tell you, this was the part that I thought they could have cut out, practically could have cut the whole thing out if they wanted to. If they wanted to shorten the movie, that section did not. And they needed to shorten this movie. Yeah, no, agreed. And I didn't feel like it really did much for the plot at all, other than you've got Antonio Banderas, right? So you got, you know, without that, you don't get Antonio Banderas. Uh, And I don't know what purpose he played in the movie other than being somebody that Indy supposedly knew back in the day. And and then he played no purpose because we have no history with him because he's a new character introduction. He, we don't get to, you know, get the charisma of Antonio Banderas. 
You know, he was he could have honestly been played by any anonymous actor and we wouldn't have known any different. And it was a waste of a great actor in my mind. Like if they were going to use him in the movie, they could have put him like in a more meaningful role. And so. then, you know, going back to chase scenes, then we have the underwater chase that was just not there was no payoff. It wasn't exhilarating or exciting and it was kind of draggy the whole section again i don't know how long it was but it felt like 20 minutes yeah that was a longer section and i yeah it, it kind of didn't serve a whole lot of purpose for me so when i got back i uh checked how long the movie was it was about two hours and 45 minutes and then i looked up all the previous four movies the longest was something like 206 the longest so yeah. this was 40 minutes longer than the longest uh, previous indie movie. And it felt it. It felt it right here in this part. I just was like, oh, what are we doing? All right. So anything else on this segment? The only thing that I think it affirmed is it kind of affirmed Wombat's bona fides with regards to how much she actually knows, uh, you know, uh, with regards to the archaeology and and the ancient languages and whatnot so i think the piece where she does the translation in that scene on the boat i think it really confirms that she really is very knowledgeable you know she's her her father's daughter and and you know she's not just this thief she's she's somebody who's got a deep knowledge of what's going on you know what that's that's a fair point and also their escape from the boat is critical to have wombat in action there too but i guess that just you know to the original point we could have cut out, we could have done all that without the underwater. They could stuff. have figured out another way to have her kind of show her partnership affection for Indy and confirm that she knows what she's talking about. They, they could have figured out another way to do it in my mind. Yeah. Okay. So now um, they've escaped and they're off to Sicily again. So we're still in present time, which is 1969. They get out to Sicily. And they figure out that they need to go into this underground cavern. And as they're um, investigating, you know, they you know they beat a couple of booby traps, and then they find a skeleton, which is Archimedes' skeleton, but it has a modern wristwatch. So at that point in time, we're like, holy crap, we've got the whole time, you know, time travel paradox here, right? But at least they didn't run away from it. They, you know, oh, they went full, they right went into it, full bore right into it, yeah. <laughs> what we learn is then, you know, so they find what they're looking for. And then uh, Mads Mikkelsen and his Nazi crew finds them. And um, we get uh, to learn what his real plot is. You know, now knowing that the writers had some of them have been credited and, you know, writers on Edge of Tomorrow, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. Like some some of it yeah. makes a little bit more sense of how they did the whole plot device and did all of the time travel components and whatnot. I love time travel as a, a genre. It's one of my favorites, probably my favorite genre in movie, TV, whatever, books, everything. I, lo I love it. I don't love when they get into the paradox stuff too much. I think that kind of, you, you need to, you need to have your way of dealing with it. And I, I didn't love the watch there. I, 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 that kind of bugged me. Well, I can't say that I disagree with you, but I have come to, you know, accept the natural problematic story issues you get with any time travel show or, or movie. And, and granted, you know, the best ones handle it well, but I like you, I enjoy it. And I just say it, it comes with the territory. If I, if I want to have this story, then I need to look the other way on some of that stuff. So I mentioned that we learn of uh, Mads' ultimate plot. You want to uh, sum that up for us? 
Yeah, so basically he wants to go back into 1940s Germany and get it right and you know, basically take over for Hitler. So he dresses up his cronies, his Nazis, and they're planning on taking the Antikythera and, and basically going back and running it back with the team. So well, that was that's my favorite part of this segment, because, you know, the classic time go back in time question or answer is, oh, well, would you go back and kill baby Hitler? Right. And, and his so answer was, his yes, answer I'm killing Hitler. Is, I'm going to yes, do it I'm better. Killing Hitler. <laughs> exactly. But not because he was bad. It's because he was bad at his job. <laughs> All right. So anything more on that segment? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there were components of that segment that were, were stretches. I mean, I, I think the running around the cave and the finding the different things was was cool. But I think that there there were components of it where it's like, oh, for goodness sake, they made it a little too easy to follow follow them. And well, I, I don't know, it just there were things that were a little kind of like, oh, come on, really, a little clunky. Yeah, right? yeah, a little clunky. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. All right, so now we are time traveling. We're in a plane, and they are trying to, or Mads is trying to go back to like 1939-ish to kill Hitler. Uh, but it turns out they end up going back to 212 BC, the siege of Syracuse. And of course, Indy can speak to Archimedes, right? He, he just knows it like off the top of his tongue. He can speak it. Yeah, but you know, so after rewatching uh, the prior movies, it is comical that he can basically speak any language ever, ancient, modern, you know, Asian, Central American, whatever it is, <laughs> he, he can he speak, can speak it. it. Exactly. So, so this has been established. This is canon. He can do this. So, of course, he, I mean, ain't speaking ancient Greek or Latin. And Wombat understood easy. it too. So, like, yeah. clearly she's like got, she inherited it from somewhere. Yeah. So, comments here. This was a little dicey. The CGI was not great. The arrows at the plane, I, I, like the CGI was clunky in that section. Yeah. I almost wish that they would have just skipped all that. I mean, did we need. Did we need that? No, I don't think we really did. And I think really them going back in time, I mean, effectively, they needed to kill the Nazis off and they needed to, you know, with the time travel gimmick, they needed to get India and Wombat to interact with Archimedes. Absolutely. But they could have done it a little differently in my mind. And they could have done it in a way that they figured out a way to kill off the Nazis and not have the CGI nonsense and, and whatnot. I just kind of struggled with it. I agree with you. It's just like that stuff with on the boat. You know, you needed to hit a couple of things that were critical to the story and the, uh, you know, the character development, but the plot, a lot of the extraneous plot and action was unnecessary. You know, two hours and 45 minutes. We didn't need a, all the air battle, you know, with the dragon and, and ancient uh, Syracusans. So yeah. too much unnecessary. Too much unnecessary. Agreed. I, I think the, the piece for me that worked in that section was the fact that Indy wanted to stay. And yes. the, the fact that he wanted to stay, I have no place in the world anymore. Like, mm -hmm. I, like he, he was like the lowest in, in the low and, and thought that the way that they played that section out where, you know, Wombat knocked him over the head and, and brought him back was just the right way to do that section. And it, like, if you're going to have him go back in time, use it as a, a lever to basically talk about his hero arc journey over these five movies and where he feels like he is at that point in time. And I thought that really summed it up really, really well. Exactly. No, that was the that's all we needed from the ancient the time travel piece was just that last part, because it brings us back to he's a man out of time. 
He was out of time in 1969, and he felt like back in 212 BC, he was more at home there than in 1969. You know, so uh, absolutely critical that we have that, you know, that scene. That's the whole point of the whole thing. But it was all the stuff before that that was completely unnecessary. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I understand the whole, you know, going back to the 1969 uh, caves, you know, finding the watch there. And then having them go back in time and interact with with Archimedes basically meant that Indy was has been a part of history all along. Like I I, I get that, and that that's kind of cool. But I don't know. So you made me think of something there. So um, and I didn't think about this uh, until just now. But um, so when they're on the plane before they go back in time, and he's giving that whole uh, play tectonics, continental drift uh, stuff. Do you think that Indy really believed it as he was saying it, or do you think that, that he was just making stuff up to mess with Mads. I I took it as he really believed it and he knew they weren't going to end up where they planned and that he wasn't messing with Mads, that, that like he really believed it. So that's what I thought too. But now as I'm thinking about it, talking to you here, the fact that they saw the watch and he clocked the watch uh, on the skeleton, is it possible that he knew that, you know, the implication there is that, you know, they're going to go back in time? He knew explicitly that they were going to go back in time and where they were going to go back in time. Yeah, but see, that's what I mean, because Indy, what he was saying to Mads on the plane, he wasn't saying that they were going to go back to 212. Do you think that he knew that that's what they were going to do? But he was just saying that your calculations are wrong, but he actually knew not only did he know that um, the calculations were wrong, but that they were actually going to end up where they ended up. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it now, how you took it when yeah, that was how I took it when I watched it. And it's kind of kind of where I am now still, because I think, you know, again, going back to the watch of it in the moment, he's like, he saw the watch and he was trying to like, what the hell does this mean? whatnot? And then he's on the plane and he's realizing what's going on. And he's like, you're not going to wind up where you're supposed to. And I think he's, and he's connect, he's connecting the dots in his own mind of shoot, we wind up in 212 BC. And this is why plate tectonics and blah, 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 blah. Oh, you're wrong. So I, I think that's what, well, so that's my point is like, I feel like he was making up the plate tectonics. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, well that, that piece, that's what yeah, I meant. maybe, yeah. maybe he was making up that piece, but I mean, I think I, he knew that the, the calculations knew, were wrong right. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so that's the part where when I watched it, I thought that he really believed that. But now I'm thinking about it. I think he was just making up some BS excuse to say you're going back to the you're not going where you think you're going. All right. Well, anyway, so now um, uh, Helena's knocked him unconscious and now we wake up and we're back in New York City, 1969. And uh, Helena and Teddy and Sally are there. And guess who else shows up? But Marion Jones. So my favorite thing about this movie is how they ended it. I love how they ended it with basically him moving on with Marion and going to move past things and the journey that he went on and not feeling like hopeless at the very end. I, I thought it was great. I think basically the fact that they'll figure out a way to get through their loss, they'll figure out a way to, to move forward. And I really like that as an ending. I agree. And I really think that you know, the criticisms that we have had and like, you know, many of the uh, critics and other people have had, 
I think they're valid, but I think the the emotional beats and the character arcs that they were going for all made sense and they were really well executed all across the board. Yeah, no, agreed. And I mean, the whole point of the pod was to talk about the movie and the things we liked and the things we didn't. On the whole, I really liked the movie. There are pieces that I would have done differently. There, you know, just like when we talk about an album, you know, there are songs that you know might not like on the album, but I love the album, right? I kind of look at it that way. There were parts of the movie where it's like, yeah, I didn't really need that. I didn't need that. Oh, I had a little problem with that. But the, the movie overall for me stood up and I thought it was a really good addition to the Indiana Jones pantheon. Yeah, and it's also great how they were able to wipe away the bad taste of Crystal Skull, but not ignoring it. You know, we don't pretend that uh, there isn't a son and there isn't much. We just get to conveniently kill him off, kill him him off conveniently in Vietnam, which which the math doesn't add up there either. So, (laughs) yeah, but again, you know, I'm, I'm just not getting hung up on those things, but it's not just writing him off, but also making it part of the emotional uh, beats, part of the character arc. That piece of why him and Marion split, why he's so down, why he feels like mm-hmm. he's a man who, who doesn't belong in, in the time that he's in. It was very heartfelt. It really was. I, and, you know, it, the ending was, for me, was moving. Yeah. So overall, you know, any, you know, anything that you want to say just overall? Yeah, no, overall, I mean, I went into it not knowing what to expect. You start off with the really long de-age sequence, which I, you know, I'd heard they did de-aging, but I wasn't sure where and how long it was going to be. It wasn't expecting it at the beginning of the movie at all. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that was jarring. Yeah. Um, I just really, really liked the movie. I, I left the movie with a feeling of like, wow, I saw one of those great, like old timey, like it was an Indiana Jones movie. It was a legit yeah, Indiana Jones indie, movie. Yeah. I'm looking forward to when it's out on streaming and stuff, because then, you know, we can just skip the 20 minutes on the water and just get a really good indie experience. Yep, exactly. Just cut to the Phoebe Waller bridge uh, piece at the end of the, on the water. And that's it. That's mm-hmm. all you really need. You don't need any, any of the other. Yeah. So speaking of Phoebe, any comments on uh, the performances or performers? First of all, I love Phoebe Waller bridge. I think she's brilliant. Um, I Fleabag, one of my absolute favorite shows. I think she's a brilliant writer, brilliant performer. I love her in this role and I love that she established herself as somebody who could be a leading, you know, action type star. Like I thought she was brilliant. I thought she was absolutely perfect. The whole wise ass smart remark. I mean, she like really was so spot on of what you get from like, you know, young indie, that wise guy. And she had the great dynamic with her sidekick. And, you know, I, I thought she was great. I'm not anxious to see Indiana Jones without Indiana Jones, but I mean, I think there's a a real like world where I'm interested in seeing Phoebe Waller-Bridge do more movies like this, uh, even if it's not picking up the bullwhip and being Wombat in future series. I agree with you. I think that, you know, if you want an audition for, you know, doing the next mummy or something like that, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. I hadn't heard or read this anywhere But gosh, I just can't help but wonder how much, if any, input she had on some of her dialogue. I have to think she rewrote a ton of that dialogue because she she's a brilliant writer and like it was so genuine like it came across i mean she's a great actress so maybe it was just her being a great actress but it just felt like her it absolutely did and you know one of the things that i couldn't help but think about was i know that this was widely reported so you know most of the folks listening to this might know this but you know the what was the best part of the last bond movie 
the best part was Anna de Armas and how great she was. And it's widely uh, believed that Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote the entire Anna de Armas uh, character. Not to digress completely on that movie, and we could completely digress on that movie. And I know you and I have talked about that movie a lot. That section of that movie, I love like yeah. that it's the best part it, of the movie. it's it's the only part of the movie i love right so yeah. give me that give, movie. Me, that give me, movie. me that movie that movie yeah. make that movie exactly yeah brilliant absolutely brilliant the smart assery that goes on in that section is very much what you get from you know wombat in in the movie i thought she was just a great character yeah so couldn't agree with you more i hope that we see her in more stuff like that that's why it's such a disappointment to to learn that you know, she and uh, Donald Glover had been working on a reboot of Mr. and Mrs. Smith and that she just uh, she left it and uh, is no longer a part of it. That would have been really good. You got to think how I mean, how good could that have been? I like I almost want to see her version of whatever it is that they were working on. Yeah. But, you know, hopefully uh, Glover's uh, rendition is is also good. But um, I want to see her in something like this again. Yeah, no, agree, completely agree. And you know what? I mean, not to state the obvious, but Mads Mikkelsen is amazing. Like, just yeah. brilliant. I, whatever he's in, love him. He's great. And and give me more Harrison Ford, whether it's Dial of Destiny, Shrinking, I, you know, doesn't matter. Harrison Ford is the man. He's amazing in whatever he's in. Love Harrison Ford. Couldn't agree with you more. And just back to Mads, same thing. You put him, put him in anything and I want to watch it. All right. So I think we went a little longer than we were hoping to. So let's uh, start to wrap up here. Do we want to uh, grade the movie or do we want to rank the series? I think we can do both pretty quickly. So why don't we do that? All right. Well, how do we grade movies? Well, you know what? I don't think we've explained this uh, because I don't think we even graded the Top Gun Maverick episode. I think think we did did a 10. Did we? Yeah. I think we did like 10 out of 10. Yeah, we might have done 10 out of 10. Yeah, which is just, I don't know. I think that was just kind of a cop out and kind of lame. So I think what we agreed, Tone, is we're going to basically out of five and we're going to use the movie theme uh, to to basically decide what we give the movie. And, you know, it's Indiana Jones. So I think we got it rated at five out of five, what, Tone? It's got to be, well, there are two choices. It's either fedoras or bull whips. I'm thinking bull. I whips. think bull whips. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna rate it out of bull whips. So so Tom, where do you land? Where do you land? How many bull whips are you giving uh, Dial of Destiny? It's definitely at least a four. I'm trying to decide if it's four or four and a half. Um, I'm gonna be conservative and say four because it was just a little too bloated. I'm right there with you and but i'm going to be a little bit more aggressive and say four and a half just because i loved how they ended it i think if you were to cut that ocean segment out of it both of us would be you know hard four and a half oh i'd be hard four and a half but i'm kind of the light four and a half but i really like the movie and it left such a better taste in my mouth than crystal skull it's a fitting farewell to just a beloved character that's why i would give it a four and a half okay i uh i can live with that so and we should give uh, some credit to the uh, the bullwhip rating system to our pop culture group chat. Our uh, gurus and, and shaman on, on the all things pop culture. Well, so I'd say shouts to our uh, group chat uh, and Will and Rick and Dave. And uh, you guys were the inspiration for the uh, rating scale. So thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right. So, Tone, last thing, I think, before we end things today, let's just quickly talk about the whole ecosystem of Indiana Jones and, and where the movies rank. I think we can do this pretty quickly. So I'm going to say, I want to go back to the MacGuffin of it. So for me, 
I look at these movies and I think the MacGuffin of the movie for me helps me look at how I rate these movies because the driver of the plot helps me kind of contextualize where I put these movies in the, the pantheon. And for me, number one is Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, a brilliant plot device. It's an absolutely iconic movie. Probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Raiders has to be num- number one for me in this list. And I, don't, I know you don't agree with me, but Raiders has to be number one. So uh, last week we had dinner with our, uh, our friends, uh, Bert and Ira. And on the ride home, Bert ruined Raiders for me. How did Bert ruin Raiders for you? He, I can't remember where he got this. He was reading or listening to something, and he point and and in that whatever he was uh, consuming, pointed out that if you think about the plot of Raiders, Indy actually had no effect on the final outcome. Think about it. If Indy doesn't exist and the Nazis recover the Ark and open it, what's going to happen? The exact same thing that happened at the end. Yeah, I don't I don't look at it that way because the fact that it got picked up and brought back and put in storage somewhere and is not harming anyone or being you know put in front of leading an army and blah, 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 blah. But it wouldn't get in front of the army because they open it and, you know, melt, faces melt. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, so go on with your ranking. So for me, it's Raiders followed by Last Crusade, which is, it's a very close second for me. So Raiders, number one, Last Crusade, number two. Um, I I would put Dial of Destiny, number three. And I, it was it was kind of a toss up between Dial and Temple of Doom. Um, I actually think Dial of Destiny is a better movie than Temple of Doom, but I like some of the characters in, in Temple of Doom, but I don't like the MacGuffin in Temple of Doom. I think it's kind of dopey. Um, so for me, Temple of Doom is lower on the, the scale of things uh and then crystal skull would be last so i would go raiders last crusade dial of destiny temple of doom crystal skull that's my order all right so um i'll add a plus and minus to the raiders conversation you already said that the minus about the uh fact that indy actually has no impact on the final outcome of of the movie but one thing that and i don't know if you had ever checked this out but have you ever seen uh the soderbergh Steven Soderbergh cut of Raiders. I have. Yes. Yeah. So watching that, it is pretty cool when you take out all the dialogue and sound and watch it almost. I mean, I'm going to say watch it as a silent film, except he does layer in the uh, soundtrack, the social network in there, but you're really focusing on the, the filmmaking and you really do get all the story that you need in the, in the pictures and the dialogue and and things like that are almost secondary to the uh, filmmaking. So those are the pluses and minuses on the Raiders argument. But ultimately I watched, we watched all these movies ahead of uh, this pod, even watched temple of doom twice, which I think I have to question my time management choices, but last crusade, gosh, how can you beat freaking Connery? and Harrison Ford. I mean, my those two guys, just watching them for two hours is fantastic. So that's why, even though Raiders might be a better film, I think that Last Crusade is just too much fun to watch. I love Last Crusade. It is a phenomenal movie. It's, it's one of my favorite movies as well. For me, it was in, as a kid, 19 of 10 years old, 1981, seeing that it was oh my God, I didn't know you could make movies like this. I didn't know that this is, you know, a movie could be like this. It was so powerful. So, yeah. So I, you know, I think that um, 1A, 1B is a fair thing to say, but if I had to pick, I'm going to say Crusade and then Raiders and then uh, Dial of Destiny 
Temple of Doom and uh, Crystal Skull. I know we're trying to wrap up here, but I only learned this, uh, you know, uh, preparing for this pod. And all my life, I had been like, why would Spielberg put his girlfriend into this movie? Like, and then, I mean, I get why. I, I, I thought I understood why. It's his girlfriend. He wanted to get his girlfriend in the movie. And that's all my life. That's what I thought the rationale was. It wasn't Spielberg's call. It was Lucas. It's interesting. Lucas said that he, uh, Spielberg wanted to bring Marion back. And Lucas said, no, Indy is always going to have a different woman every movie. So it was Lucas who insisted that they cast somebody else. And now, again, I don't know this, but my narrative is Spielberg says, all right, well, you don't want to put Marion in it. Then I'm going to put in my woman. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Well, anyway, so that's it. I think we had very similar ratings, except just the uh, flipping of 1A and 1B, right? You know, I don't think you can go wrong with either of the movies. They're both phenomenal. All right. So does that just about wrap us up? I think that wraps us up for today. And I think we went longer than we thought we were going to for this uh, this movie pod. So I guess we suffered the same problems as uh, the movie makers <laughs> did in this movie. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> we are so bad. We complained about the length of the movie and then we... <laughs> proceeded to be too long on the pod all right so bill take us out all right everybody thank you for listening to bill and tony's excellent adventure in movies today and we can't wait to be back with you and we really appreciate you listening until next time talk to you soon